I was thinking about the big picture of the book of Daniel, thinking about the challenges that they faced. In chapter one, they faced really challenges that had to do with their diet, but it had to do with their morality. They didn't want to give in to the king's delicacies. So chapter one was really trying to fight back against the pagan culture and not give in, not compromise our character. In chapter three, it was really about idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar made a 90-foot colossal statue. He demanded uh, really worship of it from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people there in the plain of Dura. And the three young Hebrew males refused to bow. They were threatened with the fiery furnace, and they said, oh no, we won't bow. And Nebuchadnezzar said, yes, you will. And they said, no, we won't. He said, okay, then I'm going to make the furnace hotter. And you remember, they were thrown into the fiery furnace, but there was a fourth one who came in, we believe Jesus, walking with them in the fire. And we have an example from now kind of life choices in terms of how we, what we put into our body, if you will. In chapter 3, it becomes about idolatry. In chapter 6, it was about prayer. You can't pray to any god besides the king for 30 days. So Daniel said, I'm going to pray. That's who I am. That's what I do. Opened his windows toward Jerusalem, got on his knees, prayed, got caught praying, and was threatened with what? The lion's den. Was thrown into the lion's den, but the Lord, the angel of the Lord, shut the mouths of the lions, and the king came running at, you know, at the beginning of the, the dawn. Has your God, whom you serve, delivered you, Daniel? Oh, yes, he has. And little, petting the little kitty, you know. So it's in the area of life choices, in the area of idolatry, in the area of prayer. And then in chapter 8, we looked at a prophecy that kind of zeroes in on a man historically named, named Antiochus Epiphanes. That's a name that you need to remember, remember because he does foreshadow the coming Antichrist. And we'll, we'll talk more about him in a moment. But one of the things that the Bible says that Antiochus did in his day is that he flung, he threw truth to the ground. He began to burn Torah scrolls. He began to make the Bible illegal. He, he tried to keep the Jews from uh, circumcising their children, sticking to a kosher diet. Many people died in that time as in the 160s B.C., We've described that. If you, didn't, if you weren't here for that, that's on the website right now if you want to catch up. But he flung truth to the ground. He was trying to keep people away from their Bibles, if you will. So think about the categories. In life choices, what do I put into my body? In areas of idolatry, who and what do I worship? In areas of prayer, and now in areas of the Word of God. This is where you're going to be compromised, or you're going to be challenged to compromise in your life, is in these areas. In, in what you do with your body. Your body is supposed to be presented to God as what? A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. You're supposed to present your body, your mind. It does matter what you do with your body. And then into chapter 3, God does care about who and what you worship. He does want you to be a true worshiper of the one true God. He doesn't want you compromising to idolatry. In chapter 6, you're going to be challenged in the area of prayer. The enemy's going to maybe put threats in your life to not pray. And Daniel refused to bow down. And then in chapter 8, it's, it comes down to the truth. Can you see these major categories in the book of Daniel where we can learn that we can step up and stand strong 
even when we have challenges come our way. And they're going to come our way. And we, we know how our culture is moving. We know that truth is right now being debated in the public square, in academia, in the university systems, in the public schools. Secularism, humanism are coming in like a flood. Uh, the church, many mainline denominations have, uh, have basically folded the tent on the inerrancy of the Bible on the ethics of Scripture, on what the Bible says about certain life choices, about roles of men and women. This is happening all around us, both outside the church and inside the church. And here's the question. Will you dare to be a Daniel or a Daniela, if you're a girl? Is that right? Is that right? So that's your thing? Anyway, what is it? Danielle. Danielle. No A at the end. It's just Danielle. <laughs> Okay, anyway, I just want to make sure you ladies were included because you're facing the same stuff as the guys are. These are the progressive steps of challenge to compromise, but here's another word, to even apostatize. That's, by the way, that's not an Italian dish. <laughs> Apostasy is actually a word in the Bible that means to defect. And there were people who were faced with these kind, same kinds of things. Think about it for a second. Do you think that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the only Jews in Babylon? No. But everybody else bowed. Do you think that Daniel was the only Jew in Babylon when the king's edict came that you can't pray to any god but the king? You see, there were Jews, there were God's people, if you will, compromising all around these guys. It's one thing, if you think of Daniel and his friends as, okay, they were the only true, you know, uh, God's people, or you could say the church, if you put it into modern vernacular, that's not true. You're going to have people around you who are churchgoers, professing Christians, who compromise. And then you're going to have to ask this question. Should I compromise too because they go to church and they compromise, so should I just do it too since... They're a, a professing Christian and they compromise in all these areas. So does it make it okay for me to compromise in my choices with my body, in my choices with how and what I worship, in my choices with my prayer life, in my choices with my Bible? And do I actually believe that the Bible is the authoritative and errant word of God? These are, these are realities for the church in every age. That's why the book of Daniel is so practical, but it's also prophetic. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, who was the last king of Babylon, the one with the writing on the wall, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel says, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. We went over that. That's chapter 7, verse 1, the previous vision. Uh, Daniel gets this vision. He gives us a time marker and to review, he sees a couple of animals that represent a couple of major things. So, first of all, he tells us about a location in verse 2. He, he describes a ram that he sees, and then he uh, describes, what, was it a shaggy dog or goat, uh, as we moved on a couple weeks ago. And uh, here's, here's the basic idea, that the, you have the Medo-Persian Empire, as you move down Kind of the way I like to think of this is you move down from Egypt down to Rome and you've got basically from 1,000 to the time of Christ. 
So if you, if you can go from Egypt to Rome with world empires, you've moved from 1000 B.C., if you will, or even, even beyond that, to about the time of Christ. So that's, that's kind of the time frame we're dealing with. And then the world empires that unfold from there, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. When we looked at the prophecy, we saw that it was focusing in chapter 8 on the Medo-Persian Empire and then Greece. Greece's ruler was Alexander the Great, conquered the known world in a very short period of time, died at the age of 33, probably as a result of a drinking binge. His two sons were killed because he wasn't there to protect them, and his four generals took over. The main focus of the prophecy becomes two areas the Ptolemaic Empire in the south, south of Israel. Israel is always kind of the focal point of the Bible. To the south of Israel is Egypt. To the north is Syria. The Seleucid dynasty was in the north. The Ptolemaic dynasty was in the south. They started warring with each other, and Israel was sandwiched in between warring nations, often between a rock and a hard place, often trying to decide who do we give our allegiance to, how do we still practice who we are, practice our religion, and not be taken out by these world forces. And Assyria and Egypt would fight with one another. Uh, Israel found itself in between. As time unfolded and these four generals kind of took their different regions, out of uh, this, this dividing of Alexander's kingdom came a Syrian ruler. His name, Antiochus Epiphanes. In verse 9 of chapter 8, out of one of them, one of the four generals or areas of geography that I, I uh, explained two weeks ago, came forth a rather, or a small horn, a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land, the glorious land, New King James. That's the land of Israel. He is the man of intrigue, and he is Antiochus Epiphanes. He was warring with Egypt. He was ready to consolidate his power after a victory down there. Rome came to him and said, if you go after them and try to consolidate your power, you have to deal with us. He turned tail. He was going back to Syria from Egypt, and he passed through Jerusalem and took out his fury on the Jewish people. Killed, I think, 80,000 people in one day. Tried to put a statue of Zeus into the Holy of Holies, slaughtered a pig in the holy place, defiled the sanctuary, and was forcing people to eat pork, to not circumcise their children. He was burning Torah scrolls. And there was a family that rose up, and this is where we get first and second Maccabees, and I'm doing some review just to catch us up. And Judas Maccabeus, who was, I think, the third son of Mattathias, the, the godly priest. Judah the hammer, as he was known, in guerrilla warfare took on Antiochus Epiphanes and finally defeated him. And they cleansed the temple and they rededicated the temple and that's known as the holiday of Hanukkah. Started on the 25th of Chislev, which is our November or December. If you know a Jewish person who practices or celebrates Hanukkah, there's eight days in Hanukkah. That's to celebrate oil that should have just lasted a couple days, but actually lasted eight days. And that was a miracle. They saw that as a miracle. And it's known as the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication. So that's kind of the, that's where we've been so far in terms of um, what happened here. This Antiochus Epiphanes character who foreshadows a coming 
Antichrist grew up to the host of heaven, verse 10, caused some of the host and some of the stars, referencing Israel here, to fall to the earth and trampled them down. He killed many people. It, the horn, representing Antiochus, even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. That's Jesus. Removed the regular sacrifice from him. The place of his sanctuary was thrown down. He stopped the sacrifice in the temple. The place of his sanctuary was cast down. He brought the Zeus Olympus statue into the holy place, had his own face put on it, and uh, did these terrible things. And on account of transgression, verse 12, the host will be given over to the horn. Many people did die, along with the regular sacrifices that he stopped. It, the horn, will fling truth to the ground and perform, uh, and perform its, will, its will and prosper. The treacherous horn will throw truth to the ground. It just strikes me that that's what's happening in our day. If you can dismiss truth, if you can mock the Bible, if you can set aside Christians and Christianity, if you can marginalize and get it out of the public square, then you can accomplish your will because once you dismiss God and the Creator and the Scriptures, now what have you got left? You've got secularism, humanism, and you can kind of have your way with it. And so this is what's been happening. Some of you who can think about you know, how people have talked about what's happened over the decades, prayer you know, out of schools, the Bible no longer welcome in the schools. We hear stories of Bibles confiscated in schools. And, you know, you can show up with just about anything in a school, but you show up with a Bible, look out. They're going to take it away from you. They can't have that. Christian holidays being set aside in the public school system, and on and on it goes. Because the truth is a threat to the father of lies who's the enemy, the devil. There are some people who look at Antiochus Epiphanes and who he was and believe he was even demon-possessed, like many people believe that Adolf Hitler was demon-possessed. And there are stories about Adolf Hitler messing with the occult and you know, dark things around his life and his, his hypnotic cadences when he spoke to the German people and his final solution and his hatred of the Jews and so forth. You see, we have to see a common thread with all these world empires that all of them oppose the Jewish people from Egypt all the way down to Rome at different levels in different ways with different expressions of it, but a common target, the Jewish people. And why? Because there's a cosmic battle. There's something behind the veil of what you see that is spiritual in nature. There's a spiritual war, you guys. And it has really set the course of human history. And when you understand human history and you understand what's happened to the Jewish people, there's only one explanation. There is a being named Satan who absolutely hates the Jewish people, hates the church, and wants to destroy it. But he can't win. He's already a defeated foe, praise the Lord. Then I heard a holy one, 13, speaking, and another holy one, I take it angels here, uh, said to the particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? Remember, Antiochus did what he did in the 160s B.C. and Daniel's writing in the 500s B.C. about 400 years before Antiochus ever lived. 
The Bible predicted the details of a Syrian ruler who would go in the temple, do what he did. Not only that, but it predicted the Medo-Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire and its dominance and Alexander the Great before it ever happened. The Bible is inspired by God. And prophecy is one of the major proofs of that. And so the angels are talking and they say, well, how long? Uh, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? How long will it go on? While the transgression causes horror, how long will this horrific time uh, transpire? So as to allow both the holy place, which Antiochus desecrated, and the host, that's the people of God, to be trampled. How long will it go on? Toward the end of two weeks ago, we saw this 2,300 evenings and mornings. I gave you two major views I wanted to mention to you that there's something that happened in the recent past that happened in Seventh-day Adventism that you might find of interest. And it goes with the predictions of the end of the world that have happened in Jehovah's Witnesses, in Seventh-day Adventism, but even in Christian circles. There have been uh, men who have gone on Christian radio. Uh, Some of you can think about just in the past five years, there was a particular pastor on a Christian radio network that was predicting the return of Christ in October of what, what was it, back-to-back years that he did this, or he did it within a very tight window. And, you know, he's got a pretty bad batting average. He's over, just like the rest of the people that have picked dates for the return of Christ. They're not doing well. They should just stop. And finally, the, the president of Jehovah's Witnesses came out and said, we should just stop making prophecies about the end of the world and the return of Christ. Yes, you should. Yes, you should. Adventism, which came out of the second great awakening, the great uh, second Advent awakening, did the same thing. They were called the Millerites, and they predicted the end of the world, the return of Jesus Christ, and they had a... a you know, a system for doing this. And they, they took the date when uh, the uh, command was given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And they think that was 457. And so then they, they picked a date in the 1800s and they were wrong. And I think it was 1843. And then they picked 1844 and they were wrong again. And this is, this is Seventh-day Adventism. And now today, there are many what we might call evangelical expressions of Seventh-day Adventism. Sometimes Seventh-day Adventism is a bit of an enigma. But Ellen G. White, who is, you know, a leader along the way, made a bunch of false prophecies as well. And she's widely read by a lot of people. It doesn't mean that everything she said was wrong, but whenever you make a prophecy and set a date for the return of Christ and people start to plan around it and think it's going to come to pass, you are on very shaky ground. Just don't do it. Jesus did give us signs of the season, but he said nobody knows the day or the hour. So we have to be careful. So Daniel, with all of this coming at him in a vision, probably being you know, taken in the spirit to the Uli Canal and Susa and all that happened. Well, Daniel, when he had seen the vision, verse 15, he sought to understand it. We can, we can understand why. And behold, standing before him was one who looked like a man. Daniel wanted to know. You wake up from a, a very incredible vision like this or a very graphic dream, you want to understand it. You want to know. 
What's interesting is Daniel had the ability to interpret dreams, remember? Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 5. He interpreted the writing on the wall. But he didn't seem to be able to, be able to do it by just command. He didn't seem to have the gift of interpretation just abiding on him. It was revelation that God gave to him in certain circumstances when he needed it. Of course, he needed it when Nebuchadnezzar was, able, was uh, wanting to kill all the wise men in his kingdom. And they had a prayer service that night. And they said, oh, Lord, please give the interpretation to the dream. But not only does he want the interpretation, he wants me to tell him what he dreamt. Help! The only way that you can get information like that is if the God of heaven supernaturally reveals it to you. And you can take no credit for that. And Daniel and Joseph would not. Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to the Lord? See, Daniel, even though he could do this for others, when he had his dream, he didn't automatically know the full meaning of the dream. And I will tell you that Whatever spiritual gift or gifts you have, make sure that you understand the origin of those gifts. A man would have nothing unless it first been given to him from heaven. Whatever your spiritual gift or gifts are, make sure you understand they come from God. He distributes the gifts as he wills, as the Holy Spirit wills. And so we need to be careful that we don't, you know, think that we've arrived because we have a certain gift or it's different from somebody else. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. That's the canal we saw last time. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man understanding of the vision. <laughs> I don't know if he said it that way. Gabriel, give this man some understanding. Now, I don't know if that's, that's how angels talk to one another. I don't think it is. But, but here's what's going on. Daniel wants to understand. He sees this man there. He's, he hears dialogue going on. And it would appear that an angel could have been Michael because Michael's going to come up more in the book of Daniel. Maybe Michael said to Gabriel, Hey, Gabe, <laughs> help, help a brother out. Help Daniel. He wants to know what's going on. Right? Don't you think that God wants us to understand his word? I think he does. We have to be careful when it comes to prophecy. We have to do our homework when it comes to rightly dividing the word of truth. But I don't think that God wants you in the dark when it comes to his will, his, the doors he wants to open for you, what direction he wants you to go tonight. Some of you are struggling with that. And maybe he's asking you to wait or he's asking you to study harder or whatever it may be. But Daniel wanted to understand and, you know, the New Testament indicates that even the angels don't understand everything. But an angel said to Gabriel, and by the way, this is the first mention of Gabriel in the Scripture, give this man an understanding of the vision. So, who's Gabriel? Well, his name means man of God or God's hero. We know he's an angel because he shows up in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 1.19 and Luke 1.26, he appears to Zacharias in the temple to announce the birth of John. And, a, and he also uh, shows up in Mary's life. And he says, he greets her and he tells her what's going to happen, that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. The Gabe Riel, the I-E-L ending or the E-L ending is, is God. And so the name 
usually with that, that E-L ending, you're going to have something about God. Here, it's God's hero or man of God. You have Michael. It's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. This, this, this archangel Michael, really cool guy, really cool angel. Right? Anyway, he's got the E-L ending, and his name means one who is like God. And there's only one other angel named by name in the Bible. Although we believe there's probably millions, perhaps even billions of angels, and the last one named in the Bible is Lucifer, whose name means light bearer. Then he takes on the name Satanus or Satan, uh, Diabolos or the devil. There's several names that are attributed to him. And we know him to be a fallen angel. So interestingly enough, with all the revelation we have in 66 books of the Bible and stories about angels, we only have three angels that are named. In Jewish writings, there are other angels that are named, but we don't know if they're legitimate because they're extra biblical writings, so we don't know if they're actually you know, accurate or not. But it is interesting to note that Gabriel is the one who is encouraged to give understanding to Daniel. Uh, God is my judge. Daniel also has the E-L ending on his name at the end of his name. And so Gabriel responds. So he came near, Gabriel did, to where I, Daniel, was standing, verse 17. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. Now, I know that there, are, there have been angel stories. Uh, we've had angel stories from missionary encounters where they describe these soldier-like beings radiating light. And we do know that when Gabriel appears in the New Testament, there's people that are scared because angels, here we go, are real shiny. See, I am Gabriel, and I hang out in the presence of the Lord, and since he's real shiny... I'm real shiny. You see, whoever you spend time around, that's what you reflect. Amen? Bad company corrupts good morals, and good company instructs good morals, encourages good morals. And here's an angel who is in the presence of God who's come down now, uh, you know, angels are ministering spirits. Hebrews 1, they come to uh, minister to those who will inherit salvation. So we do have some interesting angel stories and missionary records, and maybe you have an angel story as well. But he came near where I was standing. I was frightened. Daniel falls on his face, and this is just an angel. Imagine if you, you had an encounter with the living God. But he said to me, Son of man, that's, that's not a title for Jesus here. That's a title for uh, Daniel. Understand the vision pertains to the time of the end. You want to know? You want to know what you've seen, what it means? And Daniel had to be thinking, does this mean that my people are going to be persecuted again? Daniel's in Babylonian captivity. He's going to find out from the book of Jeremiah that it's going to be 70 years in length. And we'll study that as we move into chapter 9 and 10. And so Daniel has to be thinking, no, not again. Can't this be the final time that you have to spank my people? 
But what he's seeing in the vision is that another world leader, namely a Syrian who comes out of the Grecian Empire, is going to dominate and destroy many who come from Daniel's line. And that's why Daniel probably is as concerned as he is. Imagine if you had a dream about future generations of uh, Americans or people within your own family and you saw something frightening in the future that was going to happen to them. Would you be concerned? Of course you would. What if you got a vision of, you know, the world in 200 years from now and, and it was a staggering, frightening reality? And maybe you saw in the vision people who were being hurt or abused or even killed. That's what Daniel saw. It was very graphic, very uh, sobering. And so the angel tells him, Daniel, this, this is about the time of the end. The time of the end could be debated because people say the, the end of what? <laughs> Well, when we see the end in the Bible, what do we think of? When we hear the end of the age, what do you think of? You think of the end of this age of time. Some, some people who are in different camps in the study of end times, what's called eschatology, say, well, it's the end of the Jewish age, or it's the end of this or that. But normally when we see the end here, uh, we can think of the end of the world or the end of this particular age that the return of Christ will wrap up. And I do think that you need to understand that there's a near-far fulfillment. Remember, the near-fulfillment, even though it's far, maybe some three, 400 years from Daniel's time, is Antiochus Epiphanes, who's going to do what he does in the 160s, but Daniel's living in the 500s. But remember, in a prophetic preview, there's a second layer. And Antiochus also foreshadows, he casts a shadow of a coming world leader who will do similar things to what Antiochus did back in his day. In fact, Jesus talks about an abomination that causes desolation in Matthew 24, 15. And Jesus lived from whatever the, the actual birth date is. Some people say 4 to 6 B.C. Jesus probably died between 30 and 33 A.D., maybe a little bit earlier. Remember, Jesus lives after Antiochus Epiphanes. Jesus is not talking about Antiochus in Matthew 24. Antiochus has lived and died. By the way, Antiochus died going cuckoo. And he also simultaneously had a bowel disease. Which also happened to Herod where he was struck by an angel, eaten by worms, and died. So God has ways to get to you when you mess with his people. And so while he was talking with me about this stuff pertaining to the end times, Daniel says, verse 18, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and he made me stand upright. I, I don't know if this was, you know, escape from the brightness of the angel and just, it's too much for one day. Come on. I, 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 got, I got visions of end time stuff. I got angels talking. Give a brother an understanding, Gabriel. Gabriel's real shiny. Man, I got to go to sleep. Pulled the covers over his head. I don't know what happened. But he gets, he gets touched. Stand up. Get up, just like Peter when he's woken up by the angel in that angelic jailbreak in the book of Acts. And he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation. If you have an NIV, it says the later time of wrath. For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. 
Have you ever wanted to know something and then thought, maybe I don't want to know that? <laughs> Have you ever been intrigued about a subject? Maybe some of you are just starting to study prophecy and you're like, oh, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, yeah, can't wait. And then you leave and you go, you know, <laughs> wow, right? Because some of it's heavy and some of it's sobering and maybe that's where Daniel was. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Don't have to guess about the interpretation. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, still a couple hundred years in the future from Daniel's time. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns, remember Alexander is the first king, verse 21. He dies at 33, tragically. Four generals take over. I described those uh, world empires for you. We've, we've focused tonight on the Seleucid and Ptolemaic dynasties, but they come out of the four. They arose in its place to represent the four kingdoms, which will arise from his nation, from Greece. Syria uh, grew out of that. Although not with his power, these other kingdoms were not as strong as Greece, and so this is what's being described. And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. Now we're focusing back on Antiochus. Insolent and skilled in intrigue. A king shall arise having fierce features, New King James, fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. See, the throne for Syria was not supposed to go to Antiochus Epiphanes. He actually, if I remember correctly, stole the throne from his nephew. He was sinister. He was a man of intrigue, a man with fierce features, an angry face, that kind of thing. A sinister, scary type of individual. And he foreshadows a coming ruler who will be Antichrist or the Antichrist. As this chapter unfolds, there are many scholars that believe that what you're starting to see now is parallels between Antiochus and this future leader. And they would argue that we may well take it that in verse 23, we're getting some clues about this future world leader, that maybe he too will have fierce features and will be insolent and skilled in intrigue, and no doubt he will. He will be anti-Christ, against Christ. He will be skilled in rhetoric. He will have a silver tongue, but he will have malice in what he tries to do. And so this is some of the parallels that we can see. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. What does that mean? Does that mean some sort of demonic power? He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. As I've described to you the scene back in the 160s, you can see that this is exactly what Antiochus did. Now I'm going to give you nine parallels between Antiochus and the coming Antichrist. Remember, we do put these up in a couple days on the website so you'll be able to listen but I'll try to move a little slow. Both Antiochus, number one, and Antichrist enter into a covenant to protect Israel. You can write down Daniel 9.27 
and 1 Maccabees 1, 11 and 12, and 1 Maccabees 1, 29 through 32. Remember, I do not believe 1 and 2 Maccabees are inspired books. They're in the Catholic Bible. They are not part of the canon, but they are historically accurate. So that's why I'm giving you some references. Both Antiochus and Antichrist make covenants with many within Israel, Daniel 9, 27. Those Jews who enter the covenant are said to apostatize. You can see, uh, take a look at um, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and then the history that we have from 1 and 2 Maccabees. Number four, both Antiochus and Antichrist break the covenant, enter the sanctuary, and defile it. You can write down 1 Maccabees 1, 20 and 21. Um, 1 Maccabees 1, 54 through 56. 2 Maccabees 6, 1 and 2. And 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Now, as we've moved through the book of Revelation, we've described an Antichrist who goes into a rebuilt temple and causes what? The abomination that causes desolation. We believe that's yet future, typified, foreshadowed in what Antiochus did. He brought a statue of Zeus Olympus with his own face carved there and brought something abominable into the temple. Plus he slaughtered the pig, unclean animal, and so forth. And he desolated the temple area. He brought something abominable, abomination, and it brought desolation. It, it dirtied the temple area if you will, that needed to be cleansed. Hence, you have Hanukkah. Everybody with me? So this future Antichrist, typified, foreshadowed in Antiochus, will do something similar. He will go into the temple of God, proclaiming himself as being God. And Paul says, don't you remember when I was with you, I was telling you these things. 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Jesus says in Matthew 24.15, when you see the abomination." that causes desolation, spoken by Daniel the prophet. And then the writer of Matthew says, let the reader understand. Then let he who is in the city, a paraphrase, get out. Get out of the house. Don't go back and get your coat. Don't go back and get your, no, maybe you should get your dog. Don't go back and get anything else. Get out. Because these are the days of vengeance. Jesus is talking. If you go back and listen to the teaching we did in Luke 21 and Matthew 24, you can hear more about that. They both, uh, both Antiochus and Antichrist, break the covenant, as I mentioned, defile the temple. That's number five. That's number four, sorry. Number five, they both introduce a false god into the temple. You can reference First and Second Maccabees. History records that on that occasion, he set up an image of his chief deity. I mentioned Zeus. The deity was made in the likeness of a man with his face on it. You can reference 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. And number six. In both cases, some Jews oppose the false religion and die. That's 1 Maccabees 1, 62 and 63. You can look at Revelation 13 as the whole chapter references that. You don't receive the mark. You don't worship the beast. You die. Number seven. Religious Jews flee to the wilderness in both instances. Uh, they did in 1 Maccabees 2, 27 through 29. 
They did at the time that Jesus described events that applied to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the future. That's Matthew 24, 16 through 20. Number eight, the people who would not get on board with the plan died, including women and children. Once again, Revelation 13, 1 Maccabees 1, 60 and 61. And finally, both desire worship from themselves and oppose Christ. Uh, Antichus tried to raise himself above the commander of the host, and that's what the Antichrist will do. He wants worship for himself because behind him, his power is satanic. And through his shrewdness, Daniel 8.25, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. Notice he'll use lies, deceit, which will give him influence. Lies have gotten people to certain places, sadly. It says that, you know, uh, lies can travel around the world before truth ties its shoes. Just seems to be that way, doesn't it? Seems like truth moves like a slow train and lies can travel around the globe so quickly. He will destroy many while they're at ease, while they're feeling secure. He will even oppose the prince of princes, Jesus Christ, the prince of princes, king of kings, prince of peace. But he, Antiochus, will be broken without human agency. Remember, the story is that he got a bowel disease and died, and also that he went mad. Now, I want to show you the parallel in 2 Thessalonians 2. Let's turn all the way over there. And I'm not going to go to Matthew 24 tonight, but I do want to show you this because this section captures the idea. And there is symmetry between the book of Daniel, between Jesus, what Jesus said would happen, and what Paul says. 2 Thessalonians 2. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, unless the apostasy, the defection, comes first. And the man of lawlessness, we believe the Antichrist, is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is what he wants. He wants worship. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now. We have a future study in Daniel where we'll talk about the restrainer and who that may be. So that in his time he may be revealed, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way or taken out of the middle. And then the lawless one, Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will, will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end, how? By the appearance of his coming. See that word coming there? That's the common word parousia, always used with the second coming of Jesus Christ in mind. That is the one, back to the one, this evil one, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Notice, the power behind Antichrist is satanic. He gives power, he gives signs, and he also gives lying or false wonders. And with all the deception, think of all we've read in Daniel 8, of wickedness, 
For those who perish because they, the ones who perish, did not receive the love of what? The love of the truth so as to be saved. They would not receive the love of the truth, so that's why they believed the lie. And for this reason, verse 11, God will send upon them, those who would not receive the truth, a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. So even the Lord ultimately confirms people in their denial of the truth. Back to Daniel and we'll finish. And he sends them a deluding influence. And at one point, we could argue, they cross the threshold so that they will not end up in the camp of God. When all this, think about it. Is it hard to live for Jesus Christ right now? Is it hard for you to live for Jesus right now? Is it hard when you have a little opposition? Some of you have had a little opposition. It can be hard. Can you imagine the time when an antichrist is ruling the world and you can't buy or sell without his mark and he has fierce features and he's demonically energized and he's strategically a liar and he's swayed much of the world to him? How strong are you going to have to be then? That's why we're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit if the church is here because that's the only way we'll be able to stand. So back in Daniel 8, as we see a reminder, the Prince of Peace, Jesus, will break this one. He will supernaturally slay him with the breath of his mouth, the glory of his coming. So be of good cheer. We win. It's just going to be hard. It's going to be hard for a time. Should the Lord tarry and not come in our lifetime, we're going to have to face all the ups and downs of a fallen world, right? We have so many beautiful things in this life to celebrate. Amen. So many good things. So this may, this will only really matter to the last generation, right? I mean, we could all argue about eschatology till the cows come home. I'm a pre-tribber. I'm a mid-tribber. I'm a post-tribber. I'm a pan-tribber. However it all pans out. I'm, I'm a pre-millennial. I'm a post-millennial. I'm a ah-millennial. Okay. But really, it's only a debate until the last generation has to deal with this stuff. But persecution is very real for people who live in the Sudan or the Middle East. So we have to be aware of times in which we live. So Daniel, <laughs> Daniel sees the vision. He uh, gets the interpretation by Gabriel 26. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. The angel affirms its veracity. But keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. It's future Daniel. And then I, Daniel... Daniel is the author of the book of Daniel. I don't care what liberal scholars tell you. He wrote it in the 500s. I know it troubles people. How could he predict me to Persia? How could he predict Greece? How could he predict a coming world ruler in the 160s? Because the Bible is inspired by God. Take it to the bank. Daniel said, man, after this happened, I was exhausted and sick. I had to call in sick for days. Daniel wasn't just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Let's go to Del Taco, you know. <laughs> Daniel was, was like messed up because he was thinking of all the implications. He said, I was exhausted. Sometimes that's how we feel, sick for days. Then I got up again. I carried on the king's business, but I was astounded 
New King James, I was astonished. NIV, I was appalled at the vision. And there was none to explain it. Now you might say, wait a minute. I thought he got the explanation. But I'm sure he wanted to know more. I'm sure he wanted to know, know more details and so forth. I'm sure he wanted to, you know, there could have been a lot given to him about the Maccabean revolt and all of that. He didn't really get a lot of detail. But here's what we do know. In the end, Antiochus was defeated. And in the end, Antichrist will be defeated as well. See, our God is amazing. Hanukkah is an amazing holiday, isn't it? Seems like the Jews, every time they get persecuted and a bunch of people die, they add another holiday. Do you know that most of their holidays are about that? Amazing things do happen when God delivers his people from horrible days. In 1997, the super typhoon Paca hit the island of Guam. During the storm that stalled over uh, the island of Guam, Transworld Radio was the only radio station still transmitting in the midst of sustained winds of 200 miles per hour. Their power was knocked out along with everyone else on the island. But they had a backup generator, and the man who was on the air vowed to keep talking until the fuel of the generator ran out. After some time on the air, he told his listeners that the fuel would run out any time because there was only enough fuel to last five hours. God's people were praying all around the world, and the Lord kept that generator going for 13 hours. One of the Transworld Radio missionaries on Guam at the time, Charlie Troxell, said, there's no human explanation as to why the generator lasted that long. There's no human explanation why the oil lasted that long, except this. There's a God who loves us, who cares for us, and he's on his throne, and he ain't going anywhere. Because he who began this world will wrap it up. In the book of John, Jesus is in the temple at Hanukkah, turn over there and we're done, promised the preacher. John 10. This is the only reference we have to Hanukkah, and I, I want to show you the setting and how it ends, and this will lead us into our time of invitation. This is uh, John 10. This is verse 22. John 10, 22. John's kind of wrapping up uh, what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, and here's what he says. <clears throat> At that time, the Feast of the Dedication, John 10, 22, the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem, John 10, 23. It was winter, because we do know the feast happens in the winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews, therefore, gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered and said, Answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. They, my sheep, shall, what? They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews took up stones again 
to stone him. Why? Because they knew what he was saying. He was claiming to be God. I am one with my Father. I am the good shepherd. No one is snatching my sheep out of my hand or my Father's hand. If you belong to Jesus, no matter how dark times get, no matter how weak you feel, no matter how intimidating books like this are, you ain't going nowhere because no one's going to snatch you out of his hand. Amen? So be of good cheer. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you for the book of Daniel. It is amazing. It is humbling. It is challenging. But it is a reminder that nothing takes you by surprise, that history is your story, that it will unfold exactly as you have decreed, and that in the end, you will save your people, you will start things again, and all things will become beautiful in your time. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't know this one who is the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you've not met him yet, you're not sure that you know him. You're not sure if you died tonight, God forbid, you would be in heaven. Would you keep your head and heart bowed in just something like this? Jesus, I believe. I believe that you are the Prince of Princes, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. I want to know you. I believe that you came to this world. I, I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. Pray it if it's you. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry for doing things the wrong way. I've, I've compromised. I haven't been like a Daniel, but I want to be. Help me, Lord. Help me to become more like you. I give my life to you. Be my Lord, be my Savior, be my King, and be my friend. Father, for those who are crying out, those who may be re rededicating tonight or those who just need some courage and encouragement, would you put courage into them tonight? Would you put your beauty of your love, your spirit, fill them up, strengthen them for the days ahead. Bless them, I pray. Remind them of how much you love them and how secure they are in your everlasting arms. In Jesus' name I pray.